everyone. This is Jake Milwee. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you would ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be back with y'all. I love being here. I think I say that every time because it's true. I really do love being here with you guys. So thanks for having me. We're going to continue on in our kind of journey through Mark, at least when I'm I'm here for now. Uh, It kind of gives us a landing place and it lets me not feel like I'm just randomly picking text, but kind of gives us a little bit of solid ground, I think, uh, for a little bit. So let me pray for us and we're going to jump into a part of Mark chapter 2. So let's pray. Lord, we're grateful, uh, like we just sang about a few songs ago, that uh, it is your goodness um, that binds us to you. Um, It's not your wrath or your anger towards us or your frustration or your disappointment. Uh, No, God, we sing that and we proclaim that it is your goodness or your grace that binds us to you. So God, would you remind us of that if we're feeling discouraged? Would you remind us of that even if we're feeling hopeful this morning? God, that your goodness and your mercy truly, truly are following after us. God, we proclaim that and we believe that because Jesus came into this world that something new has begun and that we can be a part of it. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Super Bowl Sunday. I don't really care who you're rooting for, but... I feel like you just have to acknowledge that it's Super Bowl Sunday. Otherwise, people are like, why did we come to church? So, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Whatever that means to you, uh, congratulations. So, let's, let's look at Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read a fairly long uh, piece of scripture that tells three different stories about Jesus' interaction with people and about three different responses that the religious elite and the religious rulers have to those interactions. So let's start in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. And then they lowered the mat that the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. 
When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the, the righteous, but sinners. Verse 18, now, Jesus, John, I'm sorry, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and, and, the, and of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours aren't? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a new pa- a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So like I told you kind of when I started, this, this passage that I just read gives us three different snapshots of Jesus' interactions with people. And he gives us three different responses that the religious rulers have to those interactions. So let's start at the first one. Let's start in verse 1. This interaction that Jesus has with this, with this paralyzed man. Jesus goes back to Capernaum, kind of a homecoming of sorts. And the, the people are so interested in him. Uh, maybe as, as actual people who are hoping he can do something for them. Maybe just as spectators going, we've heard some stuff, and maybe this will get rowdy, and we kind of want to see where this goes. You know, they just they can't look away from the train wreck. Uh, and so people are there for whatever the reasons, and they crowd this house, and these four guys, you guys know the story, I just read it to you. These four guys are carrying their friend who cannot walk. He's paralyzed. He can't, he can't do anything for himself. Especially back then, this meant he probably couldn't get a job. Uh, he was probably just put by the side of the road and begged all day till his friends came and got him and took him back home while they were at work. He couldn't do anything for himself. His social standing was probably about as low as you could get. But he has friends, and his faithful, faithful friends take him to see Jesus because they're like, maybe, maybe this guy can do something. This is kind of our last resort. So they take their friend on his map, they're carrying him to Jesus, and they can't get in, so they decide, we're going to take him up on the roof now. Picture with me, they, don't, they didn't have roofs like we, do, like we do, they had flat roofs that were kind of thatched with branches and with, and with material like that from the earth, and then packed with like mud and stuff to seal it. So they're digging through this, this roof of this house, I hope the people had homeowner's insurance, because they're like digging through that. And if you can just imagine, Jesus is teaching, and they're just, the people are just pressed in, and all of a sudden, little like crumbs of earth start falling from the ceiling, and then this guy is like Cirque du Soleil styled, like lowered down in front of Jesus. This man who cannot walk, who can probably do very little, if anything, for himself, his friends who are desperately hoping and praying, I'm sure as he is, that Jesus can heal him, and make him walk again, they lower him down, dirt and all, and Jesus sees this man, and his first response to him is, your sins are forgiven. It's not, get up and walk. It's not, oh my gosh, look, you can't walk, let me do something. No, Jesus looks at this man, and he tells him uh, that your sins are forgiven. And I guarantee you that is not what his friends and he were thinking or hoping Jesus would say. They did not bring this man to Jesus, in their minds at least, so that Jesus could look at him and initially say, your sins are forgiven. They brought him to Jesus to be physically healed. 
But Jesus, who truly is the great physician, understands that sometimes what needs to be healed and what needs to be set is our spiritual kind of internal life. So Jesus looks at this man, and the first thing out of his mouth is, your sins are forgiven. Let's deal with, let's deal with the unseen before we deal with the seen. Let's set the broken places inside of you before I set the broken places outside of you. And I guarantee you that's not what they're hoping for. And I think Jesus still deals with us in this way. Oftentimes we bring our situations and we kind of toss them at the feet of Jesus. And we say, help, help, help. And Jesus says, oh, you need way more help than you think you do. You need way more help than, you, than what you're actually bringing to me. You need help that is underlying that. The biggest concern in this man's life, he probably thought, his friends probably thought, was the fact that he couldn't walk. And Jesus looks at him and says, no, 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 the biggest problem is something you cannot do on your own, and that is that your sins cannot be forgiven by any of the systems in this earth. And so I'm going to deal with that first. And of course, this enrages the, the religious elite, and they ask a question that they're not wrong in asking. Their response to Jesus saying, your sins are forgiven, they go, wait a second, time out. Um, this guy is saying that he's forgiving sins. No one can really ultimately forgive sins except God. So this, this man must be blaspheming. And they're only half wrong. They're only half wrong. They're not wrong that only God can ultimately forgive sins. What they're wrong about is that Jesus is blaspheming by claiming to do this. They miss the reality that God is in their midst and God is the one doing this outside of the temple, outside of their religious constructs, outside of how they've always done things, and their little minds can't handle it. They can't handle the reality that was announced in Mark chapter 1 that the kingdom is here, repent and believe in the gospel. And it looks so different than what they had clung to for millennia and for centuries that they cannot let it go. And so they miss it. And Jesus traps them in, in a logical fallacy of sorts. And he says, which one's easier? You tell me. Because I'm going to do both of them. But you tell me which one you would rather me do. <laughs> and neither of them is going to look good for them. He says, is it easier to tell them that your sins are forgiven, something you can't see externally, but something you say only God can do? Or is it easier for me to do something that's going to completely flip this place on its head by telling him he can actually get up and walk? Which one do you want me to do? And they're silent because they don't really have a response for this. And Jesus says, to prove to you and to show you that the Son of Man can forgive sins, I'm also going to tell him to get up and walk. And he does just that. Jesus adopts this term, Son of Man, for himself. And in the collective understanding of Israel, as they progress through the Old Testament and into the New Testament over time, this Son of Man, we read that and we think that's a singular figure. And it, it becomes adopted by Jesus as being a singular figure. But in the Old Testament, it could represent the collective unit of Israel. It could represent a smaller unit within Israel. It could represent an individual. And here's a few things about this title, Son of Man. It often is accompanied by great suffering. <laughs> as we begin to see, as Mark and the other Gospels unfold, it, be, it is often accompanied by great suffering. And it's also kind of this weird title that, is, that has a little bit of like mystique to it. <laughs> It gets thrown around sometimes in Daniel. It gets thrown around in the prophets occasionally. And scholars still are kind of like, we think we know what it means, but it actually probably means a broader sense than what we've kind of nailed down. And Jesus adopts this title for himself as one who's going to do something on behalf of God through the Spirit. And he says, to show you that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, I'm also going to do this. And finally, this man's hopes and dreams are realized, and he gets up and walks, and everyone just erupts in praise. 
But again, the religious leaders cannot contain this picture of what God is doing within their system. It doesn't work. And Jesus is about to break their system again, in verse, starting in verse 13, where Jesus is just walking along, and he looks at this guy named Levi. Now, if you're an astute Bible reader, you've noticed that in the other Gospels, this tax collector is called Matthew. Whoops. What do we do with that? Uh, scholars think it's probably the same person. People had different names back then, multiple names. Um, they think he probably had a brother, and it's the whole like way of where to, how do we get to the 12? How, we don't need to worry about that this morning. Other Gospels use the name Matthew. Here in Mark, we have the name Levi. It's probably the same person. But what we do know, regardless of what their names are, is that Jesus, in, in the Gospel stories, calls a tax collector to be one of his disciples. Now, you guys are smart. You've been in church a long time. You know, probably, and if you don't, that's fine, that tax collectors often came out of Israel's own people, so they were, they were Israelites by nationality, that were often then employed by Rome or by the local governments who were kind of controlled by Rome to tax their own people. And of course, this wasn't really looked on favorably by the, by the Israelites in that community. And oftentimes, you know, people kind of extort money and they take advantage of that situation. And it, it just wasn't a good position to be in. You often were able to make some decent money and live a good life, but you didn't have a lot of friends. And people in your own community and of your own nation uh, ostracized you often. And so Jesus walks by Levi or Matthew and he says, follow me. And he does. And apparently they had a big party that night or something because it says that Jesus then has dinner at Levi's house. And again, remember, Levi's a tax collector. Not, not, a, not a good thing. And it also says uh, a bunch of other sinners were there. It's, a, it's just a big party. It's just a bunch of tax collectors and a bunch of sinners. And somehow the Pharisees catch wind of this. Now it says that the Pharisees of the law uh, who, who saw them eating there. So I don't know if the Pharisees are like walking by, like looking in the door going, what's going on in there? Or if they were there, we're not sure. It's kind of unclear. But somehow the, the Pharisees and the religious elite catch wind of this party that's happening, this dinner that's happening. And back then, much as it is today, if you're gonna like hang out with people and eat with people, it means that you're associating with them. It means that you're, 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 you're actually like forming some kind of bond of friendship or bond of like unity with them. It doesn't, you don't just sit down and have dinner with some random person. Maybe you do. I most definitely do not. That's very strange. And if someone did that to me, I would get up and walk away. But this is, this is a symbol of we are building relational equity with the people that are around this table. So it's not a casual thing for Jesus to sit down and have dinner with a bunch of what the Pharisees call tax collectors and sinners. And again, the Pharisees are not wrong in their statement. They just don't get the whole circle of it. They don't understand that they are included within that group. They look in on the situation. They kind of look through the doorway and they're like, look at that. Like, that's not good. He's associating with, he is building relational equity with tax collectors and sinners, and they put themselves on the outside of that circle, not realizing, again, their statement is not wrong. Yes, Jesus is dealing with tax collectors and sinners. He's hanging out. They're having a great time. Statement isn't wrong. Their understanding of the statement is wrong. They, do, they fail to recognize themselves as part of what they're talking about. Once again, their kind of preconceived notions of how God was going to act and how the Messiah was going to act and what God was going to ultimately do through and in Israel cannot contain the newness of what God is unleashing. Their preconceived ideas are just crumbling around them and they cannot deal with it. Because this Jesus who's able to forgive sins 
and also physically heal people is now also hanging out with people that they don't want to touch. And it really bothers them. It really bothers them. This third and final kind of installment, Mark is a very fast gospel. Mark moves like, like just scene, scene, scene. Mark goes very quickly. So we have this scene with the paralyzed man being lowered down, and then we're immediately kind of rushed into a scene with Jesus having dinner with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. And then we're rushed into another scene where John's disciples and the Pharisees and their disciples come to Jesus' disciples and say, yo, why aren't you guys fasting? Fasting was incredibly common back then. The Pharisees fasted multiple days a week, every week. John's disciples apparently fasted. Religious people fasted. That's what you did, like on a regular basis. We kind of do it usually if we do it at all. It's like a once a year thing or like I really need to hear from God on this thing, so I'm going to like throw fasting in the mix and kind of hope that helps. That's kind of how we treat fasting often. They just did it like as part of their life. So the John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples, they're like, go, go talk to Jesus' followers and figure out why they're not fasting. Do they know something we don't know? Have we missed something here? Or are they just like lazy? Like what's going on? And Jesus finds out that this conversation is happening and he tells them, he says, look, while the party's going on, you feast. That's this whole language about the bridegroom being, it gets really tricky. We're like, this, this is like run on sentences and stuff. Like what's happening? Jesus just looks at him and basically what he says is, while we're at a party, you feast. While we're partying and while God is doing something new and when God is right in front of you and God is showing you new things, he goes, we feast. He goes, now there's gonna come a time when the bridegroom, Jesus, leaves. He goes, and then we enact fasting. He goes, but right now, while God is present with you here and God is doing something and the kingdom has been inaugurated and God is moving and new things are happening and the gospel is being proclaimed, he goes, we're gonna party. That's basically what Jesus says. And then he says, but, but FYI, there's gonna come a time when you incorporate fasting back into what you do. And we've been balancing fasting and feasting since the ascension, my friends. <laughs> we've tried to do this. Sometimes we do one better than the other. It's a hard balance to find, but if you pay attention even in the church calendar, even during a season like Lent, which we're getting ready to come up to, which is a season of fasting in many ways, even built into Lent are feast days. <laughs> Sundays are considered feast days because we're worshiping and we're partying and we're like, God is King, Jesus is Lord, amen. A lot of the Christian life is learning to balance the fasting and the feasting, and that's hard. It's recognizing that, yes, Jesus is Lord and the kingdom has been started and we're part of that, but it's not already, it's not completely here yet. So we, fat, we feast because we know that Jesus is Lord and the battle is won, but we fast because we realize that we're still living in a broken system. And that's a hard balance to find. And that's one of the great struggles of the Christian life is balancing those things. Is recognizing the truth of the statement that Jesus is Lord and recognizing the truth of the statement that our world is still broken and hopefully, my friends, our both fasting and feasting are calls and symbols to the world around us that this is not ultimate, that sin and death do not have the last word. So when they see us feasting, they can be like, what do you have to be so happy about? Why are you just, why are you glad? Why are you happy? Why are you joyful? Why are you filled with hope? And when we feast, hopefully, or when we fast, rather, hopefully they're going, what are you trying to do? Like, what are you remembering? What, what's this about? Fasting doesn't imply sadness. It implies focus and purpose. 
So what are we focusing on? What is our purpose? What are we trying to do with this? And then Jesus concludes this, and he says this crazy thing. He says, you don't take a piece of unstretched, pre-shrunken fabric and use it as a patch on something that's been worn out. Why? Because that thing is ultimately going to shrink, and it's going to make all the seams around it pull, and you're going to make the hole worse than it was before. You buy that pre-shrunk fabric first. (laughs) Then you put that on. And then he says, similarly, you don't pour new fresh wine into old wineskins. Why? Because the old wineskins cannot contain it. They will burst. They're brittle. They've already held wine. They're old wine. They can't hold new wine. They will burst and you will lose all of it. And I think what Jesus is saying here, much like has been kind of drawn out of these other stories, is that, hey, FYI, God is on the move. God is doing something new. And it probably, much like it did for that paralyzed man at first, doesn't look like you expected it to look, like I expected it to look. It's not answering all our questions and checking all our boxes and fitting into the system that we wanted it to fit into. And Jesus looks at these people and he says, you cannot put new things, new wineskin, new patches on old things. It will break them. They cannot contain it. They cannot hold it. You have to develop a new vessel to have God pour into you what is new. You have to kind of break down old systems and break down old ways of thinking that God is slowly revealing over time aren't necessarily accurate. Again, maybe some of us are kind of expecting God to do one thing like this paralyzed man. Maybe we're expecting God to do one thing like the people expected Jesus to treat Levi. And we're realizing God's not doing that. So maybe God isn't over there. (laughs) Maybe God isn't over there the way I thought God was. And that's an invitation, I think, to us as individuals, as a community, as, as the church writ large, to invite through prayer and say, God, what new wineskins do we need to develop to contain the new things you are doing? Remember, Jesus jumps on the scene in Mark chapter 1 and offers a new message. He says, hey, the kingdom is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's new wine. That's a new message that had not been taught to these people before. That God was present among them in doing something. And I think a lot of us feel like this paralyzed man, or we feel like the, the, the Pharisees looking in on these situations going, this isn't exactly what I wanted. God's not playing by my rules. God's not doing what I wanted God to do. And Je- Jesus reminds them in that conversation at the, with, about the Pharisees, or about the tax collectors and the sinners at dinner, and he looks at them and he says, hey, s- healthy people don't need a doctor. He's like, I have not come to do what healthy people need. I've come to help the sick and the sinners. And again, the Pharisees kind of miss that because they don't realize that he's talking about all of us. Jesus tells them, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. And that's not Jesus' way of saying, not you Pharisees, not you. He's saying, I've come to call everyone but especially and primarily those people who really realize they're sick, much like that man who was lowered down by his friends. Do we realize that we're sick? Some of us, I think, have kind of insulated ourselves and we've created a little world that we live in where things mostly go okay for us. Things are generally going okay. 
I mean, pandemic life has been hard. Maybe we've had some illnesses in there. Maybe, you know, we have hiccups along the way, we have unexpected things, but generally we kind of have our life on lockdown. We're like, I got this. I got it figured out. And I think that the way in which we're able to live our lives here prevents us from realizing how sick we really are. Because we want to come to Jesus, I think much like this paralyzed man at the beginning of our story, and we want to kind of throw our problems at Jesus' feet like these friends of his did, who are good friends. I hope, to, I hope that you have friends like that. I hope you are friends like that who will carry your people to Jesus. But I think sometimes what we do is we bring our problems, we bring our frustrations, we bring our immediate needs, the things that are really bothering us, and we kind of throw them at Jesus' feet, as we should, but we say, fix these things, please. And I think Jesus just looks at us and kind of goes, I want to fix way much, so much more than just that. I want to fix your perception of these things. I want to fix how you've engaged with these things. I want to fix your understanding of me and how I'm going to deal with these things. And so I think a lot of the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what are we expecting Jesus to do? What are we expecting Jesus to do? And where do we need to realize that much like this paralyzed man and much like Jesus says in just a few verses later, where are we sick? Where are we sick? And where can we invite Jesus into that? And where can we say, can, can you fix this? Maybe not in a way that I'm anticipating, but can you fix it? Because I believe ultimately that you're the only one who can. In the first service, uh, we, sang a, a, we sang a hymn called There is a Balm in Gilead, which is a great, it, it's a Negro spiritual. Um, and they understood, I think, more than any of us, the need for healing and restoration and hope. And the main chorus of that song goes, There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. And that song comes out of a passage in Jeremiah where Jeremiah looks out over just, just desolation and hardship and brokenness and a kingdom divide and all just these horrible, horrible things. And Jeremiah goes, is there a balm in Gilead? Is, is there no physician here is what he says. Is there no physician? Is there no healer that can make this right? And he's desperate and he's just he's frustrated. And that song picks up on the reality that there is a balm in Gilead. There is a healer. There is a physician. If you realize you need him. If we realize that we actually do need help. And here's the good news. Jesus is just standing there saying, come on. Break that hole in the roof and drop your problems down. Drop yourself down. I'm here and I'm the great physician and the great healer, both of your spiritual life and of the world writ large. And I've come to do something about it. There is a physician. There is a great physician. He just often doesn't heal us in the ways that we think he's going to. Let's pray. God, would you, through the Holy Spirit, encourage us and remind us, God, that you understand what it is to be human. You understand what it is to be present in a broken world. God, thank you for inviting us into the kingdom where you are the great healer, where you are the one who's able to set both the broken places internally in us and externally in our world. God, would you give us new, fresh eyes, just like those new wineskins, to be present and attentive to the new things you're doing.
God, we don't want to get just lulled into complacency and lulled to sleep. Would you help us be awake and just have eyes of wonder? Because we believe that you're still doing new things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.